This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon. We're ready to get started. Um, so you can see my colleague, Professor Diamond, likes to run things right on time. Um, so um, we're, we, I want to welcome you, first of all, to um, this panel that is sponsored by the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute. Um, my name is Catherine Stoner-Weiss. I'm the Associate Director for Research and Senior Research Scholar um, at the Center. Um, and joining us this afternoon are uh, Larry Diamond, who is seated immediately to my left. He is a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and coordinates the Democracy Program at the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. He also runs our Program on Democracy in Taiwan and is known to many of us uh, colloquially as Mr. Democracy. Um, he is the editor of the Journal of Democracy and is just completing a book called The Spirit of Democracy. So you can get a sense of the theme of his work from those titles. Um, it's Stephen, an interesting question. Have you ever written anything that did not have the word democracy in it? You did. Okay. All right. Okay. We'll find something. All right. Um, Seated to Larry's left uh, is Mike McFall, who couldn't wait to be introduced to speak, in fact. And he is, uh, he is the, he's my dear, dear friend and uh, director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law, um, and uh, is also a professor of political science here at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution um, as well. I'll stop at that because we could take the whole, uh, whole, day up with Mike's titles. He's also acting director, I should mention, uh, in Chip Blacker's absence of, uh, um, of the Freeman Spogli Institute. Uh, so he has been your host today. Um, and seated immediately to Mike's left is Abbas Milani, who is um, sitting in for us today. Um, and we're particularly lucky to have him. Our colleague Stephen Krasner couldn't be here today. But Abbas is um, a fellow at the Hoover Institution um, and is the co-director with Mike and Larry of um, the Iran project at the Hoover Institution. He is a well-known expert and commentator on contemporary and past Iranian affairs. Um, and so with that, I think we'll get started. We're going to start with Mike uh, and then move to Abbas and then Larry. Okay. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, can you see me in the back? I feel strange. Um, you can't. So should we stand to yeah. speak? Although both of these gentlemen have had surgery uh, on their legs and feet in the last... Uh, I bet you I could, you can probably hear me without the microphone, right? Okay, then I'm going to put this up so I don't have to hold it. I am not a rock and roll singer. How's that? Can you get me now? Great. So we have no slides. This will be turned off today. Uh, for those of you who are at our panel, last year, of course, we had lots. I think we tried to fit in 157 slides in one hour, which is impossible. And part of the reason we have no slides is this is not work that we have done. This is a, a set of ideas that we're playing with. Um, and at, if at the end of an hour today, you all react and say, this is a really crazy set of comparisons, then we're going to shut it down and do nothing more about it. And that's, that's the end of the day. Uh, it's a lesson to us all that we should be able to take uh, chances and think outside of the box and think creatively in different ways and then realize uh, that academics are not so good at, by the way. People in Silicon Valley understand this better. You got to take chances. You got to have some losers uh, and some failures in order to have breakthroughs. So 
<laughs> that is the, um, the preface to what we're going to say. And you may ask yourself, well, what are the reasons to put these three countries together on a panel? Um, and what I want to do is talk about some of the similarities, some of the differences, and then some of the implications for the comparison for U.S. policy, and then we'll turn more concretely to Iran uh, with Abbas. So let's start with the similarities, and, and let's start with the obvious ones first. These are three autocratic states, uh, powerful autocratic states. When I think of threats to the United States, I think of the transnational threats that Gilles Capel uh, and other uh, is going to speak about tonight. We've had some of that, right? Not states uh, floating out there on the internet in, in, in connected ways that have nothing to do with states. That's a real threat to the United States. When I think of another set of threats, they are the failed states and failing states that harbor terrorism, that create problems for us. Afghanistan comes to mind. Uh, unfortunately, maybe Pakistan comes to mind as we speak. Those are also real threats. But there's a third set of threats uh, uh, that used to be the kinds of threats we only thought about. Hasn't got so much attention lately, but and we want to put them on the table today. And that's states that are not failing, that have power, that don't like us. Uh, and these are the, the states that we're trying to talk about tonight. Uh, Iran, Russia, and China. Not only are they powerful states, but um, they're all regional hegemons, I would say, already. Uh, in their own regions, they project power already. And when you're sitting in Georgia, or you're sitting in southern Iraq, or you're sitting in Taiwan, uh, the hegemon in, in your region is not the United States. We heard a lot in the morning about how we're the only superpower. Well, as a global power, yes, we're the only global power, but when you get into the regions, all three of these countries are the hegemon in the region um, uh, for various different kinds of reasons. Now, um, they project power in, in three different ways. That, and I think the fact that they project in three ways and not just one, almost by definition, makes them a, a regional hegemon. They all project power through their economies. Uh, China does this first and foremost, but Russia most certainly is the economic hegemon uh, of the space that we used to call the, the Soviet Union. And Iran most certainly, in terms of, of economic power in the region, in the Gulf, is, is the hegemon, is the economic powerhouse there. Second, they all project power coercively through the region, though in various different kinds of degrees of this. Uh, most certainly Russia is involved in that, using coercive power vis-a-vis -vis countries like Georgia, uh, Ukraine, Estonia, the cyber war you might recall, where they have power and they're using it coercively. They do it cooperatively too, don't get me wrong. But I think what distinguishes these three states is that they, they all use coercive power to project their power. Iran most certainly uh, through their proxies uh, in southern Iraq, uh, in Lebanon, and now in Palestine using coercive power. Uh, China less so, but, uh, but depending on how you define the neighborhood and, and what should be in, inside the neighborhood or not, whether we're talking about nation states or not, most certainly, for instance, Tibetans think of the power that they feel uh, that China is, is not just cooperative win-win, but coercive power that is being projected. And third, and this I think gets less attention and deserves a lot more attention here in the West, um, all three of these countries to very different degrees are projecting their ideological power or what Joe and I would call their soft power. 
They are not just uh, playing balance of power politics. Each one of them, for rather different reasons, thinks that they have a model that is exportable to other places. So Iran, I've already mentioned, and Abbas will say more about this, I'm sure, through Hezbollah, through the Shia world, uh, definitely has aspirations for projecting an idea about power throughout the Middle East, and then some would say even beyond the Middle East. Uh, China does this principally through a very unique model of modernization, uh, modernization guided by uh, autocracy. And this is a model that is emulated not only in the region, but throughout the region, including, by the way, even in Russia. That is, one hege regional hegemon here, China, is having effects in terms of the way Russians think about their own power and, and how to project it and how to grow it. And Russia does this in a very deliberative way, too, through language and culture, which they do almost by definition because of the former Soviet Union. But I think more interestingly is the way that, that Russia has really started to fight back in terms of US and European efforts at promoting their values and institutions in that space, sometimes called euphemistically democracy promotion. Uh, they've now gotten onto this, and they're now fighting back with their own set of ideas, with their own set of organizations uh, in the region, in Europe, and in the United States, by the way. So just a few examples of the Russia case. Uh, they're opening a democracy and human rights center in Brussels, uh, where they want to talk about their conceptions of democracy and propagate that through the European Union. Uh, they have started their own Freedom House. Freedom House is an NGO located in Washington that rates all the countries around the world and gives them scores on democracy. Um, Catherine has participated in this for Russia. Uh, I'm on their board. I think it's a fantastic organization, by the way. Uh, but the Russians don't like it because we've been rating them lower and lower recently. So rather than, surprise, surprise, they don't like it. So they started their own rating system. And guess what? The United States is a lot farther down on the, their scores than mm. they are on the Freedom House scores. Um, and even in a much more, some would say sinister, but I would say just this is the way of the world, they now hire their own lobbyists. They now give money to think tanks uh, in Washington. Uh, they now endow chairs at uh, different universities and different institutions, an issue I think we're going to have to address at FSI as the, uh, the wealth of Russia becomes more and more powerful, uh, to try to get in this war of ideas so that their perspective is being represented. Third. Similarity. They all have aspirations to be more than a, a regional hegemon. They all, in various different ways, think of themselves as unique countries and unique countries in the world, not just in their region. And I'll say more, maybe more about that later. Uh, I'll bet you we'll, we'll get to it both Abbas and Larry. Fourth, similarities. All have post-revolutionary <coughs> societies not necessarily post-revolutionary regimes, but I would argue post-revolutionary societies. Uh, I teach a course on revolutions here at Stanford from time to time, and all these countries are in my list of countries that we teach, that I teach, but not because of, uh, uh, but because of the ones that you associate with them, right? The Bolshevik Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, and the revolution uh, that brought the Islamic Republic to power. Well, I would say all the societies been there, done that, we are no longer aspire to be part of those old revolutions. Russia had a genuine uh, anti-communist revolution. Uh, China, I think society is doing it, though formally 
the state still considers itself that they still have this communist party. Uh, and most certainly the Islamic Republic and Mr. people like Mr. Ahmadinejad still believe that the revolution still has legs. But I would say the majority of society most certainly there do not. So really interesting similarity between three places that you might not associate with each other. And fifth and finally on the similarities to varying degrees, they all have a competitive, if not downright antagonistic relationship with the United States. I'll skip maybe differences in size of power. Oh, these are the differences, uh, very quickly. One, they all are powers, but different sizes of power and different kinds of power. China, of course, is the economic hegemon of the three. Russia's second, Iran is third. But if you're looking at military power, Russia's first, China second, Iran is third. If you're looking at ideological power, this is a little trickier though, I would say Iran is first, China may be second, Russia is third. Differences in degree of integration with the West and I would say the international system more broadly. China I, uh, today I would say is the most integrated. Russia comes in second place on that list. Iran the least integrated of all. Third, different levels of economic development. And this may surprise you given what you've heard about China today. But on this list, Russia is unequivocally the richest place, GDP per capita. Uh, Iran is unequivocally the second place, GDP per capita. China is a very, very distant third when we're talking about level of economic development at the individual level. Fourth, and finally, different degrees of antagonism with the West. I would say today, Iran has the most antagonistic relationship, Russia the second most, and China the least. All right, so those are similar differences. What does it all matter? Is there anything we can learn from thinking about these things? Let me leave you with three lessons. Lesson number one, regime type matters. It's not an accident of history, nor is it just a reflection of power that we have problems with these different uh, kinds of countries. Uh, it is just, uh, and, and the, the, the notion that Bob Blackwell was speaking about this morning, that we have a different relationship with India, we have a different relationship with France, Jill's not here, good. Uh, um, uh, they also have hundreds of nuclear weapons, but nobody loses any sleep about them. We lose a lot of sleep about Iran trying to acquire one, and that simply is because regime type does matter. And moreover, if I had more time, which I'm sure I don't, uh, I would make the case that our relations with both Russia and Iran have gotten worse recently as both of those countries have become more autocratic. And I would make the opposite argument about China. Our relationships with China has gotten better as that political system, which most certainly is still an autocracy, but is much more uh, open and politically and economically liberal today than it was 30 years ago. So there's a relationship, if you will, between the kind of regime that is there and uh, the relationship that they have with the United States. So the obvious policy recommendation, we have an interest in promoting democracy in all three places. Can we do it? I'm not sure, but I'm going to come back to that at the end of my remarks. Lesson number two. Degrees of engagement. The most integrated country on the list, China, is the least antagonistic country in terms of dealing with the United States. Remember, this was a panel set up to be what should the United States do with these bi three bilateral relationships. 
The least integrated state of the three, Iran, is the country that we have the most antagonistic bilateral relationship with. And Russia is somewhere in between. That is, when they were striving to be integrated and we were serious about integrating them, in the 90s, the relationship was in pretty good shape as they have given up on integration and we have stopped thinking about it and Russia has drifted to be more autocratic, our relationship has gotten uh, much worse. And, 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 and so I think that the, the consequence, the, the, the lesson of this is should we have a more strategy of integration vis-a-vis -vis Iran? Could we make Iran look more like China on the scale? Is there a lesson, in other words, of our, the way we have managed the relationship with China for Iran? And I think there is and there isn't, but I want to put that on the table as something to think about. By the way, I want to say on Russia, uh, the country I know best of the three, we absolutely blew it on this one. We just totally blew it in the 1990s because we didn't think that the regime type mattered. We all, all we thought about was whoever's our guy there, and it happened to be Boris Yeltsin for most of the time, mattered. And whether democracy took root or not, it's all modernization theory. And once they just get their middle class, everything's going to be hunky-dory. And, and, and that's all we thought about. And if you look, and, 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 and I was so frustrated by this, I wrote a piece, which sounds kind of absurd today, called Why Russia's Politics Matter. You, you actually had to write articles like that in the early 90s. This was published in January of 1995 in Foreign Affairs, trying, screaming to the international community and the Clinton administration that you've got to focus on this democracy stuff. It's not just the economy stupid. Uh, remember, that was their slogan, and that's what they thought in terms of their aid program. And I've never done this before, but I just want to quote from myself um, sure? the way this ended. I said, the United States in some has no national interest in promoting economic reforms in Russia that are not accompanied by a transformation of the political system. America's greatest national security nightmare would be an emergence of an authoritarian imperialist Russian regime supported by a thriving market economy. That's exactly what we have in the year 2000. That was from 1995. And I think, therefore, in thinking about what to do right about Iran, in particular, we have to remember what we did wrong about Russia. Finally, lesson number three. I think when I think about the state-to-state -state relationship with China, Russia, and Iran, that the state, a positive state-to-state -state relationship, something going on, in the bilaterals, where you show up and have something to talk about that both sides think is interesting to talk about. Paradoxically, I think creates room for democratic change from below. And conversely, when we try to push the state into a corner, it makes it much more difficult to do the societal to societal connectivity things that I think ultimately are the kinds of things we should be doing to promote democracy in all three of these countries. And I just remind you of the experience of the Soviet Union. It was not during the days of, of the Cuban Missile Crisis where we were having luck and, 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 and we, we were making progress on the societal societal exchanges which ultimately, I think, helped to bring down communism. And I could say more about that in questions. Rather, it was when we were in a more positive relationship where the state-to-state -state relationship was more positive with Mikhail Gorbachev at the top, that we could do those other societal things. And I just wonder, in both the case of China and Iran, if there might be a lesson to be learned from there. 
and also a lesson to be learned for Russia today. And in particular, and I'll leave you with this thought, that if we had an ongoing bilateral state-to-state uh, -state agenda that was a bit of the Perry-Schultz initiative on getting rid of nuclear weapons that you heard about earlier today, if ironically that state-to-state -state engagement might make it easier to do the more society-to-society -society things that would ultimately help to bring about democratic change again in Russia. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Um, Abbas? Uh, I am not going to get up. I'm sorry. I have a bad, uh, uh, badly swollen foot. I apologize. There isn't much to see anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, untrue. <laughs> if you uh, listen to President Bush uh, or Condi Rice or read the, uh, the White House's national security document, I think they make it very clear that the, uh, for the United States, Iran is now the greatest challenge, and it's likely to be the greatest challenge uh, in the uh, few foreseeable years in future. Uh, in some ways, Iran is the natural hegemon for the Persian Gulf. If you look at the map, the size of Iran, the size of the economy, the size of the population. If you look at its uh, strategic significance, it sits on the Strait of Hormuz, through which travels much of the energy of the world. It controls three islands, uh, Tom, uh, the Big Tom, the Small Tom, and Abu Musa. These are almost uninhabited islands, but they are the lifeline of that important waterway. Iran took control of them in 1971, and they have remained in Iran's uh, uh, sovereign claim since then. Uh, so it has an incredible strategic uh, location. Uh, it has an incredible uh, richness in uh, oil, gas, uh, what is very little talked about because so much is said about oil and gas, but Iran is very rich in copper. It's very rich in uranium. It's one of the richest countries in terms of the varieties of uh, uh, natural resources. Uh, and uh, it, it is also, uh, of the countries in that region, the only one that was a country before colonialism became interested in the region and divided up the, uh, the region after the end of the Ottoman Empire. Iran has been a country. That plot of land that is now Iran is the shrunken version of what has been Iran there for 2,500 years, minimum. Just two weeks ago, they found uh, a settlement outside Tehran that is 8,000 years old. There have been people living there. They didn't call themselves Persians. But people have been calling themselves Iranians there for 3,000 years. That's very different than United Arab Emirates or Kuwait or Iraq, which were Churchill's concoction in 1919 after he had too many scotch or, or brandy. He uh, must have had it. The way he divided it up, it doesn't make any other sense. Uh, but uh, in spite of this natural uh, tendency, and uh, incidentally, uh, the entire Nixon doctrine in 1971 was based on the recognition by the United States that Iran is the natural hegemon in that region. Nixon doctrine was based on the idea of strengthening the Shah, giving the Shah everything he needs, uh, minus the bomb. And towards the end of the Shah's rule, he was even contemplating getting the bomb. Uh, to make the Shah the most important political, economic, military force in the region. The idea was, and the idea worked, 
uh, that the Shah would be the policeman of this region. If anybody decided to make trouble for the West, anybody decided to block the West, the waterways, the Shah's regime would be able to stop it. We had a communist movement in Zofar, for example, that was taking over uh, the Kingdom of Oman. The Iranian special forces went across the border, fought there for three years, and put down this movement. Had it not been for the Nixon doctrine in Iran, UK or US would have had to go in and do this uh, work. But even then, in other words, even recognizing the natural reality of Iran's hegemonic uh, uh, claims, there was resistance to it from England, and there was resistance to it from Arab states. And England decided to side with the Arab states against Iran becoming the hegemon. One of the more uh, fascinating aspects of UK-US relationship is the tensions that arise between the United States and England over US's decision to strengthen Iran and allow it to become the hegemon of the region. It's very little discussed in the, meet, in the scholarly work, but there is an enormous amount of fascinating material there. The reason the Arab states did not want this uh, was for several reasons. Iran is in some ways a very unnatural hegemon for this region. Iran is the only non-Arab state in that region. Iran is the only Shiite-dominated state in that region. There is a history of animosity between Persians and Arabs. Just I, uh, remind you that the last word Saddam Hussein said before he fell off the gallows was death to Persians. There were three people he wanted death, Americans, the traders, and Persians. Uh, in his earlier youth, he also wanted the Jews dead, but in that time, economy of time forced him to f just focus on the, just the three. Uh, so th there was uh, an enormous animosity. Uh, there was a natural uh, aversion to Iran becoming uh, this uh, hegemonic force, uh, even when Iran was ruled by a Western-friendly Shah. Today, Obviously, when Iran is ruled by a Western-averse, radical Shiite regime, the resistance to this hegemonic claim are much, much, much more. And uh, there are some, I think, structural weaknesses in the Iranian society today that make the claim for uh, the hegemonic role uh, more doubtful and more vulnerable. Uh, one of them is, as I said, the tensions that exist between Arabs and uh, Persians in increasing tensions between Shiites and Sunnis. This was not something that figured very prominently, for, for example, in the 70s and the 80s. It has now become a problem. Uh, Arabs uh, in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, the, see the Iranian regime as trying to create a Shiite arc, a Shiite revolutionary brotherhood, and this has become a source of uh, anxiety for them. Uh, there are fundamental weaknesses within the Iranian system that make it difficult for it to uh, exercise all the f uh, power and uh, exhibit all the authority that it wants. The, the system is a basket case economically. In spite of record oil revenues, the regime hasn't been able to get the economy going. The regime suffers from incredible tensions within the, its own structure. Uh, if you follow the media, Iranian media in the last week, for example, the sniping and uh, attacks between Ahmadinejad and Rafsanjani 
have reached a level that I have never in 27 years seen in uh, Iranian society, and they, you know, they impeach the president. That's how tense the, uh, the interfactional feuds were. But now the situation has become truly uh, an incredible case of uh, uh, fights. Uh, 24 hours ago, Mr. Rafsanjani went to a very public uh, uh, talk with Mr. Musavian, and within hours, uh, the government of Iran announced that Mr. Musavian is going to be arrested on the charge of espionage for, so, for England. Uh, I mean, it is that, uh, and it was very clear that uh, Rafsanjani was taking Musavian to show his support for Musavian, and the regime was uh, going to arrest Musavian in order to go after Rafsanjani. So these inner tensions, I think, make it less a monolithic power that can uh, exhibit the kind of uh, uh, hegemonic claims that it would otherwise do if it was, in fact, uh, uh, a unified uh, regime. The ideology of the regime, the ideology that would have been the force for exporting this revolution, I think has now become more or less a bankrupt, certainly bankrupt within Iran. It still has some appeal outside Iran. Uh, I, I think if uh, one of uh, our speakers we had here in a few months ago said something that I think is very true, Akbar Ganji, he said if there are a free and fair elections in the Middle East, in the Muslim Middle East, the only place that fundamentalists will absolutely rule, lose is Iran because there people have had the experience with this paradigm of politics and it has failed. So that uh, bankruptcy of ideology hardly makes this a viable uh, regime that can uh, export its revolution. And then there are the examples of Turkey and Iraq. In Iraq, particularly Ayatollah Sistani and his version of Shiism. In Turkey, a secular, democratic, but Islamic regime has come to power and it has proven to create an economic miracle. In uh, Iraq, the highest ranking Shiite authority in the world today, Ayatollah Sistani, was offered the chance to have power and he refused. And he has and his followers have been openly critical of the version of Shiism that is practiced in Iran, the version of Shiism that says the clergy should hold political power in their hand. So on the one hand, you have Iraq, and on the other hand, you have uh, Turkey, and both of these are challenging the paradigm that this regime would have needed, a political paradigm, if it was to become an ideological hegemon. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that the regime has all the <coughs> natural prerequisites to be a hegemon, but it doesn't have the political ideological requisites and for all the reasons that I have suggested. Now, the U.S. has been uh, for at least uh, 50, 60 years trying to promote democracy in Iran. Uh, the idea that the democracy promotion began with George W. Bush uh, flies in the face of uh, reality. FDR is the first president that tried to implement a democratic uh, experiment in Iran in the Hurley report. Uh, I have made copies of three articles that uh, I, I have written. One is on Hurley, the other one is on Ahmadinejad, 
The third one is on Iran and Russia. Uh, they are available where the articles are available. I don't know where they are. And some of the ideas that I am <laughs> talking about in brief here can be found in that article at some length. And uh, there, in that article on Ahmadinejad particularly, I argue that the, the Islamic Revolution, in a sense, was the result of a failed democracy uh, promotion by the US in Iran. Uh, the Islamic Revolution of 1979 is to no small measure the result of the fact that the fabric of Iranian society was changed and drastically changed as a result of pressures by the Kennedy administration who wanted to democratize Iran. And th they brought about changes at the economic level, they brought about changes at the social level, and as uh, Mark referred to, the theory, development theory was then that as you change the economy, as you change the infrastructure, the political system will also become democratic. So the infrastructure was changed, the middle class was created, but the Shah, instead of opening up the political system as it had been the plan of the, the Kennedy administration, began to tighten it up just at the time where he needed to open the most, where the middle class was at the height of power, the shock began to tighten up. And the result was uh, the revolution. And we can talk about some of the reasons why uh, this happened. Uh, so I, I think it is absolutely, to me, clear in terms of uh, the case of Iran that the type of a regime that exists in a society is very, very crucial in determining the outcome of democracy promotion efforts. If you have a regime like the Shah, which is attentive to the West, that tries to be on the good graces of the West, then democracy promotion has less confrontational uh, consequences. If you have a regime like the current regime in Iran, which sees itself in an adversarial relationship with its own people and with the West, then it sees democracy promotion as part of this cultural imperialism and reacts the way that they have been reacting, which is to become paranoid, which is to uh, go after anybody who has any contact with the outside world. Just today, I read uh, that the, the intelligence ministries have issued a new directive that the, they should go and make sure that Iranian students in American institutions are not being influenced by American propaganda. In other words, they no longer are limiting the attempt to curtail the contact between scholars and the West at the level of scholars, they're now extending it to the level of students. That's how paranoid they have become as a result of these uh, efforts. Uh, my uh, sense is that the greatest danger in today's Iran, and I have made this argument in uh, the, uh, uh, yes, one minute, yes, thank you. Uh, uh, in the art, uh, article about Russia, is that the regime is making a strategic realignment of Iran away from the West towards what it calls the Asia look or towards the Asian paradigm. That is, it is trying to create a market for its oil in India and China. It is trying to expand its relationship with China and India and Russia to the exclusion of the West. That's a change that would re 
position Iran away from something that Iran has been for almost 500 years. 500 years, every regime in Iran has seen its future tied more with the West than with the East. This regime, uh, in, in order to avoid the democracy promotion ideas, is trying to realign itself and go with Russia, China, India, and away from Western contact. And that, I think, would be an incredible change in terms of the geostrategic balance of forces in the world. Thank you, Abbas. And to tie it all together, mm -hmm. Professor Diamond. Um, so I will try uh, first to, in a, in a way, put this in a larger global context and then bring it down to um, the most rapidly rising of these three powers, which is obviously China. First, let me say um, that this phenomenon of um, increasingly self-confident, resourceful, uh, determined uh, autocratic hegemons regionally, and in the case of Russia and China, returning to some extent or aspiring to some extent to a global power status, uh, is taking place against a backdrop of um, very sweeping global political change over the last, uh, now over 30 years, uh, what we call the third wave of global democratization that began in 1974 and has seen the percentage of states in the world that are democracies, more or less, increase from about a quarter of all the states in 1974 to about 60% of all the states today. Uh, and um, this, of course, has transformed uh, the regional environments of two of these states that we're talking about, Russia uh, and uh, China. Russia lost uh, its empire uh, and its whole uh, western border has gone democratic and um, been integrated into the European Union. Uh, and then there are some troublesome democracies or semi-democracies that are not so responsive to the Russian will anymore in places uh, like Georgia. Uh, and China saw uh, much of its uh, uh, regional environment become democratized beginning in 1986 with the uh, sudden people power revolution in the Philippines, then the transition to democracy in December 1987, the beginning at that time of a transition to democracy in Taiwan which was culminated, I think, with the direct election of the president in Taiwan in 1996. Then you had in the most, one of the most unlikely places in the world, and again, right on China's border, and in fact, uh, unfortunately for this poor, sparsely populated country, the, the one that sits literally right in between these regional hegemons, uh, Mongolia, uh, becoming a democracy in the 1990s. And Thailand as well, it broke down, but I think it's going to return at the end of this year. And now the most powerful ASEAN nation, Indonesia, all democracies. Uh, this is unsettling to a Chinese communist leadership that despite the liberalization, very real, of uh, uh, the uh, last uh, almost 30 years now, uh, still has, I can assure you, absolutely no intention of seeing its rule democratized, uh, and as I will explain, has done quite a bit to try and make sure that doesn't happen uh, anytime soon. 
Um, and uh, there is, uh, it is important to remember as well um, that the Chinese Communist Party suffered a near-death experience in 1989 in Tiananmen Square. Uh, communist rule, you know, came somewhat close to unraveling during that uh, momentous uh, series of uh, events uh, from the late the spring through the June 4th, 1989 crackdown. So um, they have that in mind. They have in mind the fate of Mikhail Gorbachev. If there's one thing you hear over and over again uh, when <laughs> they're being honest, uh, it's that the Chinese communist leadership has no intention of making the mistakes of Mikhail Gorbachev and opening up and loosening up politically Socially, fine. Economically, absolutely. That's making them rich. Capitalists, welcome into the Communist Party. But politically, in terms of loosening power uh, and allowing, we heard earlier in this room about the competitive village elections, all well and good uh, to the extent they really are competitive uh, and free and fair. And I have more skepticism about that than was uh, articulated during that earlier session. But uh, allowing competition for power, real political pluralism, real criticism of the Chinese Communist Party, no thank you. So um, there's another specter haunting these regimes, all three of them, which Mike has written about in a seminal way, I think, that has defined the academic treatment of this phenomenon, and this is the color revolutions. Uh, that took place uh, first in, well, actually the first one was in the Philippines in 1986. But in terms of the recent wave, the three that, um, that really inspire uh, fear are um, Serbia uh, and then Georgia, the Rose Revolution, and Ukraine, the Orange Revolution, and the kind of half-revolution that took place in Kyrgyzstan. And so in the wake of these... Um, uh, political accidents of authoritarianism unraveling in the context of semi-democracy uh, that was used by creative opposition forces in civil societies to force open the door, expose electoral fraud, bring down the regime, and literally have a kind of revolution, the type of revolution Mike most enjoys writing about. Um, you know, these regimes all watched this happen. Uh, by then, Putin was really sinking his authoritarian claws into this society, and I think, uh, you know, uh, determining that this was not going to happen in Russia. The Belarusian leader, Lukashenko, I think was unnerved by this, determined it wasn't going to happen there. And of course, the Chinese leadership and the Iranian leadership, because they saw uh, two things converging. One was the um, experience of social and political forces outside the state using the limited space that had provided, been provided them. And the not entirely free and fair but still competitive context of elections in each of these countries to basically seize the situation, turn it inside out, and upset the apple cart of authoritarian rule. And the second thing that these autocratic hegemons or aspiring hegemons saw was the United States. <laughs> and to some extent the European Union and other democracies. And you know, after, and Mike has written about this as well, after the Serbian color revolution, the Serbian uh, civil society organizations uh, going to Ukraine and um, helping them 
the Ukrainian uh, civic movement with, by sharing the techniques of civil resistance and election monitoring and the other things they had done to help them make their revolution or uh, you know, uh, diffuse best practices, we call in the literature. Well, um, uh, they were determined that uh, this kind of foreign uh, virus was not going to spread to their countries. And so what has happened in the last um, number of years, beginning really uh, around the time of September 11th uh, in 2001, uh, is an authoritarian um, retrenchment and reorganization, reequilibration in which the autocrats, frankly and unfortunately, have been learning some very valuable lessons about how not to let the, uh, these accidents of democratic breakthrough happen on their soil, and about the danger, frankly, of letting uh, international uh, democratic partnerships and assistance uh, move forward on their territory. Uh, and they have taken very vigorous, very concerted, very creative, and unfortunately, to some extent, very effective action uh, to try and disrupt and prevent this. Uh, an early step in this regard, which some of you know about, was the formation in 2001 of an alternative club of autocrats to counter the expansion of NATO called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization which included China, Russia, and the Central Asian, the principal Central Asian authoritarian regimes like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. I don't know who else might be in it now as well. But you know, they, they sought uh, quite self-consciously to figure out what they could do to cooperate, to block democracy assistance, block uh, democratic innovations, block the whole logic of um, uh, moral and political logic of democratic expansion and democratic assistance. Mike has talked about how Putin is launching an ideological offensive in this regard uh, in reverse. And to um, you know, re resurrect this principle of non-interference in the internal affairs of sovereign states uh, in order to uh, shove it back in the face of the United States in particular uh, and Europe as well. There has been, in addition, uh, some very effective efforts to try and block some of the most exciting forms of democratic innovation that have emerged in the last decade, and that is using the uh, internet and other uh, digital forms of communication. Abbas has written, it's one of the things he most likes to write and talk about, about the explosion of blogging in Iran, which has uh, 70 to 100,000 bloggers now. Actually, a, a Farsi is the 10th the most used language on the internet now. And um, a lot of authoritarian countries, our Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law has been hearing a lot about this from the participants in our Summer Fellows Program, uh, are seeing Democrats trying to use the internet, use um, blogging, use the transmission of information via various websites, and crucially, use the underappreciated um, uh, technology of text messaging, SMS, short message service, to try to advance democratic gains. And in fact, uh, some very exciting things have been happening uh, in this regard in China, 
where SMS is now being used to organize large-scale protests, one of which was a huge protest against a chemical plant uh, that uh, was proposed to be installed in Xiamen, China. And then they, uh, the uh, opposition forces uh, started integrating this with the internet and blogging, and you know this thing threatened to spiral out of, um, out of control. There's a wonderful Chinese uh, democracy activist, uh, one of the founders of human rights in China, Xiao Chang, who now, I have to admit, is at UC Berkeley, <laughs> where he's directing the Chinese Internet Project, uh, studying these things. Uh, and he has observed um, that Chinese youth uh, you know, are using this in a very powerful way to advance protests. Well, one of the things, I won't belabor this, I've got to wrap up so we can have some time for discussion, but one of the things that's happening now uh, is that China is figuring this out uh, and has developed uh, very effective tools, uh, as I suspect Russia has as well, and Iran as well, to try and block access to the Internet. And the minute there's a protest with short messaging service and they get wind of it, uh, they disrupt the... Um, uh, cell phone lines and block the text messaging capacity to try and nip this uh, in the bud. There are an estimated um, 30,000, maybe more, internet police in China now uh, whose main task is to screen websites, home pages, and email uh, and uh, purge the web of, quote, harmful information that can be ac accessed by the estimated 140 million think about that number, Chinese users of the internet. Um, so there's a game going on, there's a kind of war of maneuver going on, and it's partly a technological war between the Democrats on the one hand and these three authoritarian regimes and others on the other hand. And uh, these regimes are cooperating with one another, unfortunately, sharing their best practices of, um, of blocking these mechanisms uh, and uh, in ways that we don't fully know about and understand. And so these techniques are diffusing. Now, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say that our own Internet companies, Microsoft, Yahoo, Cisco Systems, uh, have been uh, cooperating with China uh, in giving them the technology to control and block the use of the Internet in this way uh, under threat that they would lose access to the Chinese market. Let me just uh, offer a few ideas, ideas finally on what, how we might respond to this because this is something that the National Endowment for Democracy is trying to think about now at the level of how democracy assistance programs can respond to this very new and increasingly sophisticated level of authoritarian backlash and um, cooperation to frustrate democracy promotion. Um, first of all, there is a very important struggle going on within the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, uh, to determine the, f the soul, the future of that organization. ASEAN is adopting this month a new charter uh, which has for the first time language in it about democracy uh, and the character of its member states. It's going to have as its new Secretary General one of the most forward-looking pro-democracy political figures in Southeast Asia, Surin Pitsuwan, who was the foreign minister of Thailand and the democratic government there. And so I think we need to strengthen and encourage ASEAN to play a role in this respect 
for uh, democracy. Generally, we need to stand by and strengthen some of the neighboring democracies in the region, not to bash China, but to simply bolster them. Mongolia, in particular, I would underscore here, is in really uh, a sensitive and difficult position. Third, we heard Shashi uh, Tarur, I, I think a brilliant, really superb uh, address to us, talk about rising India and its soft power. It's an extraordinary phenomenon. It's a hopeful phenomenon because this is the other rising global power in the world, and this is the one that's a democracy. But there is a sad and really deeply um, discouraging reality about India today on the world stage, and that is India is internally democratic, but it's not externally democratic. It is a major pillar of support for this awful regime in Burma, uh, competing with China for its natural gas and other uh, energy resources. And it's just very loath to really get involved in trying to support and advance democracy outside of its own borders. We have to fight, and indeed the National Endowment for Democracy has helped to organize a conference in India next month, which I'm going to, to try and make this case. We have to fight for India to become a significant player on behalf of democracy and human rights regionally in Asia and globally. And I think there is a um, capacity to do this by linking up directly with Indian civil society, which does have a very strong idealistic streak. Two final things. I think we cannot concede uh, uh, to the uh, authoritarian control of the internet uh, the victory that they think they're winning here. We need, there is a technological race going on, I underscore it, and we need to find ways as democracies of empowering the Democrats who are trying to use these very innovative technologies to win this race. Finally, I'd just like to say, it's the last chapter of my book on global democracy that's coming out in January. If we're gonna have the moral authority to respond to Putin, to respond to the Chinese leadership, to respond to Ahmadinejad, we have to acknowledge the fact that Putin is probably not entirely wrong in downgrading the United States in terms of the quality of its democracy. If we are going to be more credible in promoting democracy abroad and responding to these increasingly vociferous and self-confident pushbacks against democracy promotion, we have to become a better, more transparent, more competitive democracy in the United States. I don't have time to go into this, but I think you can understand the ways in which we might need to address this. Thank you. All right, thank you. Um, I know there are going to be a lot of The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.